What up, this is Dart Adams, and this is episode 81 of Dart Against Humanity. So, what's happened since the last time I spoke to you? Uh, there were protests, again, all over the United States, of course, and overseas. But there were several protests in Boston. They were peaceful until at some point, somebody... At the protest, a small throng of protesters uh, wanted to incite some things, and it led to rioting. And then that led to some looting. And, of course, the protest was happening in Boston Common. I live, I'm an eight-minute walk the Boston Common from where I live. I'm about a five-minute walk another direction to the Boston Marathon finish line. I go to Dartmouth Street, then Boylston. I go straight down uh, what's Columbus Ave, and I cross and I cut across, cross the street, and I'm on Boston Common. So. I can get to Boston Common again in eight minutes. The protest was happening in Boston Common. The police began advancing on people after some people were throwing things at the police. Supposedly, the story goes. Then the police started advancing on everybody at Boston Common. Now, here's the thing. The way Boston is set up, and at that time of night, there are several stations around. So if you wanted to leave the protest, all you got to do is just go to those stations and leave. Or you can walk one of two ways and it's a main street, Tremont. Then you have a couple other side streets that you could just like make your way down the main street like Columbus Ave or down Tremont and go home. That being said, nobody who is actually from Boston who lives in Boston, who had the intent of going home after the protest, would start anything in the common at that time of night knowing this. Because what ends up happening is the police advance, they block off everything, they start tear gassing or doing whatever they can, or advancing on people at the garden, I mean at the common. The trains keep running, they don't stop. The buses don't run, they keep going. And they've trapped themselves there. The only reason you would do that is because you know Downtown Crossing is close by and Newberry Street and Boston are close by, which are both shopping districts. And you're going to start some shit. And also, it's in close proximity to, again, I live eight minutes away, walking. And what's behind me is Copley Square Mall, which is connected to the Prudential Center, which, again people haven't been going into because quarantine. Eventually, everything that was happening there spills into downtown crossing where people are um, looting and there's, and people are looting. Then they go down to Newberry Street and Boylston where they loot some more. Then they come down to my part, which isn't that far away, and they someone breaks into... Um, the Copley Square Mall, and then people start looting there. 
Now, mind you, at first, I'm doing something else. I'm reading what's happening on Twitter. It's a real-time social media era, so people are showing video, real-time video of what's happening on Boston Street, what's happening on Newberry Street. You see the stores that are getting looted. You see who's doing it, and you're just like, man, these people can't possibly be from here. They're breaking into the UGG store. They're breaking into Zara. They're breaking into Patagonia. And we're going to get blamed for this shit. Now, destruction of property, given the circumstances, doesn't really bother me. To me, it's the fact that we have demonstrations and protests for the fact that black folks are getting killed by the police without any retribution, without getting arrested without getting convicted without getting jailed and it happens time and time again and people are frustrated and they're fucking angry about it for some people that clearly are not out for that purpose they're just opportunists to come up and fuck up some shit and it's not even reflected in the fact that like when there was rioting in the 60s there was rioting in the 60s when there was rioting in the 70s there was rioting in the 70s there It wasn't the same thing as somebody coming along and usurping your uh, cause or someone coming up and being an opportunist and being like, oh, there's going to be riots anyway. Let's just start some shit because we know that the people who are going to catch hell for it aren't you. That was my issue. So anyway, everything gets looted. Shit gets boarded up around here. Uh, Stuff gets closed down. Some people just shut their shit down just, you know, in case something like that happens again in the future. And I'm like, I don't see it happening. But you never know because police don't stop. Police are just assholes. They just do whatever they do without impunity. They're attacking people who are trying to go home. So anyway, I'm I was I, I had I was sitting here at home while all this shit is happening all around me. People are peeling off, driving off. I'm, my sister calls me and she's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm at home. And she's like, and I'm telling she's talking about all this thing she's saying. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. She's like, well, I'm watching the news. I'm like, wait, what? I turn on the channel five news and I'm like, dude, that's outside. That's right there. And by that time, people are driving down in cars getting carloads of shit going back and forth into the mall. And there was no police presence. This was crazy. We had the National Guard, Boston police, Lynn police, uh, uh, Wellesley police, this police, Belmont police, police from every town, Lynn police, every town with a name of a woman within a 10 mile radius. And Boston, again, is not that big. And I'm just watching this whole shit play out. And it's disappointing because, again, there's our cause, there's the cause, and then there's some people who just take advantage. And it's just fucking annoying that no matter what we seem to do, there's always somebody who comes along and exploits it. For profit. But this is our lives. This is our existence we're fighting for. But y'all saw opportunity to fuck some shit up in the neighborhood you don't live in. <laughs>
Now, it'd be different if we did it because that was our goal from the beginning or shit spilled over and we were like, you know what? Fuck it. It wasn't our idea. Y'all did it and we get blamed. That's the difference. Anyway, that being the case, uh, one thing I've been doing a lot of, because again, not really doing a whole lot of sleeping. I never did, but really not a lot of sleeping now. Is um, I watch Korean baseball. There's no other sports. The one sport that's been running is in Korea. The KBO has been having, you know, games. So I've been watching a lot of Korean baseball. They have American commentators. A lot of them have played in Korea before and they're giving their take on what it's like to be in Korea. They're giving their take on what's it like now playing in Korea because uh, COVID-19 has made it so that there's no st- there's no fans. Uh, when people celebrate something, they're not high-fiving. They're like like touching just fists, closed fists, shit like that. You know, people, they're social distancing in the dugout. It's, but it's still playing baseball. But I don't know anybody playing. But I'm watching it because I love baseball and, you know, I've watched my fair share of, you know, uh, Japanese and Korean baseball over the years on other channels. But what else am I going to do? If you've seen everything on Netflix, if you've watched everything on Hulu, you know, you've seen the new episodes of everything recently, then like. You're just going to be up at 5 a.m. watching Korean baseball. It's not like there's another option, sporting-wise. ESPN ESPN2, you know? I'd seen Gangs of London. I'd finished that. And then I did my other things where um, I built that TV stand in my living room. I took my books out of my room and moved them to the bookshelf in my living room. And then there's another bookshelf underneath the TV stand. Then I have a whole other... Uh, uh, space right next to it on the other side. So when I get my newer books, they're going over there because where I was keeping them in my room didn't make sense. So I have a, I built a new TV stand in in my room. Got a new TV. Again, I got it from Amazon, a cheap TV. Uh, I don't have cable in that room, but it's connected to Wi-Fi, so you can watch like YouTube and shit like that. It's a smart TV, and I have two. 125 gig USBs <laughs> plugged into the two USB slots. This loaded with series, every MCU movie, uh, a gang of DC uh, series like Titans and all that shit. Uh, some a few DC films because, you know, I don't like a lot of them. I really like. And it's funny when I'm on Twitter and people talking about that, they didn't like um, they didn't like the. uh The joint with um Harley Quinn. I'm like, that shit was dope. The Harley Quinn cartoon is fucking amazing. The Harley Quinn cartoon is fucking amazing. And the thing that's making it even better is that the first season, they kind of skirted around like the issue, like the relationship between a Harley Quinn and um, Poison Ivy. And, you know, they've gotten to it. And it's funny because when they started getting to the... uh relationship between Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy finally is also around the time and some of y'all gonna get it some of y'all absolutely ain't because you don't pay no attention to shit like this they finally finished up um 
the Shira, the DreamWorks Shira, and they finally finished the storyline, and it happened where they made Shira and Katara an actual thing. They didn't fucking skirt around the issue anymore. They didn't hint at it anymore. They just said, fuck it. They're lesbians. They're in love. Bam. And I was like, word. When you're a writer and you see things angle a certain way, happen a certain way, and then sometimes like they're like they're afraid of how the fandom will respond or they don't want to cave into the fandom and then they're like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. Like that shit that happened with Supergirl where everybody thought it was going to be Lana and, and, and Kara and it turns out that they didn't do it and they put, and they put Lana with um, uh, Jimmy Olsen. I was like, yo, why did y'all... Why did y'all bait everybody? You know, like, don't do that shit no more. But anyways. Another thing that happened in terms of co-opting and taking something over and hijacking a cause. Not too long ago, on Tuesday, actually, there was this blackout that happened all over um, Instagram to raise awareness of, you know, corporations and companies and places of business and, you know, what's going on in terms of inequity, inequality, the police killing black people, racism, white supremacy, and to amplify supposedly the voices of black people in the space. Now, at the same time, there were some hashtags that kind of canceled each other out. So when you scroll through Instagram, it was just black and nothing. There was no information being shared. You know, there were no resources. There were no links. It was just black. And the original cause was two black women were going to have this thing called pause the show. Where it's going to be a media entertainment stop. We're going to have to turn everything on its head and be subversive and shine the light on some other people and shine the light on these people who are, you know, disenfranchised in our space. And that whole shit ended up being a fucking finesse. I mean, some people finally figured it out at some point and were like, hey, um, this isn't working. Uh, and then what happened is... Uh, the This You popped up. That Uno card. Bam. This You. Where a whole bunch of outlets and corporations and companies were like, hey, we're committed to this, 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 this. And This You pops up. Hey, how about when y'all did this? How about when y'all fired this person? How about when y'all discredited this person? How about when y'all gaslit this person? How about when y'all, y'all ain't had no, no black women working in here? How come... Y- what happened when this happened? Uh, I still haven't been paid for my work as a uh, freelancer with your company. Uh, y'all got rid of all the black folks years ago. You know, all that shit is happening. And then people are talking about how they feel being black and Latino or Latinx in different spaces and not being heard and not getting their voice out and feeling like they're worth less than their white co-workers and being passed over for promotions and a whole gang of other um, dirty shit just happened. It's all coming to light. Which, A, 
when it comes down to shit burning down, hey, it can happen physically. It can happen metaphorically. Whatever, bro. Um, when another thing that happened to me uh, right after that, so that happened on Tuesday. I believe this happened between Tuesday and Wednesday. I was having a conversation on Twitter. And there was this dude who is the Night Sean. Night Sean 101, I think, on Twitter. What happened was he kept having this conversation about stand culture and how much the journalism space or the culture takes from stand culture. And he's a writer and he, he credits himself as like a writer or something. And I always took offense or had issue with him uh, representing himself as a stand before anything else. Because the issue is that what a stand is. Stands rarely can be objective and they usually have their agenda and they have a uh, tunnel vision when it comes to the subject matter or the artist or whatever it is, they're zealots for the most part. And in order to be a journalist, you can't really be a zealot. And he's, his response was, and he said this before, and I didn't agree with it because it's, it doesn't make sense. He says that it's like how you're a stand for hip-hop culture. I was like, I'm not a stand for hip-hop culture. It's like, because I can adjust and go along with the times and switch up something that doesn't fit or doesn't work. A stand is somebody who is steadfast and is going to ride regardless. Like there isn't a, there's not a whole lot of accountability. There's not a whole lot of critic, critical thinking uh, when it comes to the stand space. Because when you're a stand, you get points deducted because you're a stand. You get dismissed because you're a stand. Because you only see things one way. When a discussion happens and you find out someone's a LeBron stan, you don't want to engage with them anymore because it's like you can't even have your eyes open and really see what's going on because you're fucking tunnel vision and all you care about is defending LeBron, defending LeBron, defending LeBron. If you're a Kobe fan, it's Kobe stan, that's what you do, if, you know, and you just hate, 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 hate. Like, the reason why Paul Pierce gets all his this hatred is because, again, so many people have their favorite players or favorite teams, and Paul Pierce was on the other side. But another main reason is that why Paul Pierce is one of the most hated people is because of the con is there is a convert there's a there's a space where the Kobe stands and the LeBron stands meet. It's like that, it's like that um, meme. With the black arm and, and the white arm. Just from fucking um, uh, Predator. Dutch and um, Homeboy. And they 
meet over hating Paul Pierce. Kobe stands, LeBron stands. And those are the two most active stand groups on Twitter and on social media. So further, so he was talking about how stands can be experts. And I'm like, if you can't be objective and you can't see the whole picture, then technically you're not an expert. You think you are, but you're not. So his argument was that I stay booked. And I'm like, so? But you stay booked on certain things, not everything. Like, I do a wide array of things. I'm versatile. I can do a whole lot of things. And that's because I can't be a stan. I'm not a stan. I love Prince. There are Prince albums I hate. I loved Michael Jackson. When I was a kid, everybody's an entry point. I loved Michael Jackson when I was a kid. But there came a time when it was like, once you had Thriller, between Thriller, Prince had 1999, then he had Purple Rain, then he had Round the World in the Day after that, then he had Parade after that. 1987, Michael Jackson shows up with Bad. 1987, Prince drops Sign of the Times. I'm no longer a huge Michael Jackson fan like that. I'm Prince all the way. However, Prince drops Love Sexy. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Later on, Prince drops uh, Graffiti Bridge. I'm like, um, uh, I watch it, but I'm like, um, uh, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't. So a Stan is somebody who would ride for that shit regardless. Stans ride for Kanye. Yeezus. They make up reasons that Yeezus is good. I could never be a stan because I'm too critical. I'm always looking at something from different viewpoints. I'm always decomposing something. I'm always analyzing something. That doesn't allow for me to be a stan of anything. And that's what makes me a good journalist. That's what makes me a good researcher. That's what makes me a good historian. I'm always digging. I'm always searching. And I can always revise something. I don't set anything in stone because everything can be turned on its head. That date, that timeline that you think is solid, some new information can always come to light and you got to roll with it and you got to adjust everything. Stans can't do that. Perfect example. I believe not too long ago, uh, Sean actually wrote a piece talking about uh, Lil' Kim and all the stuff that Lil' Kim revolutionized and did. And it was written from the perspective of a stan because that stan didn't know that Lil' Kim was basically modeled on someone else, a woman named Nelda, who was the queen bee, who had her outfits that matched her wigs. 
they made Lil' Kim run around with the Gabbana girls. The Gabbana girls are modeled after the girls, the women, that Nelda ran with in New York. Nelda was a New York legend. Kind of how, like, they made Gusto based off of the neighborhood drug dealer Gusto. And the writers based them off their neighborhood drug dealer Gusto. There were two writers on CB4. One was Chris Rock, and then there was the other guy. I could look it up. His neighborhood drug dealer was Gusto. Chris Rock's neighborhood drug dealer was a dude named Tut. They went with Gusto over Tut. Okay? So, you're a stan, but you don't know that. Because you're so fucking laser-focused on what it is that's great about that artist you love that was your entry point that you don't know the facts around everything because you never looked because this is where everything stops for you here you don't dig deeper and then there were a whole bunch of things now in that piece that was talking about all the things that little kim started that she absolutely didn't shit that was done by people in the 70s like way before she ever recorded and you see all these holes and then you realize that like there wasn't an editor in place to be like, actually, no, because you already com- we already committed to this piece. We're going to run it. And that's where stand culture gets it wrong. And that's where stand culture falls short. And what happens is that in music journalism, we have far too many stands writing pieces that don't have they aren't fully researched. They aren't fully exhausted. They aren't objective enough. Because it's written by stands and stands don't have that kind of range. And it's just, it's not the same as being an expert. When you're an expert in something, you have to know everything from A to Z and then a whole nother level of understanding to include context and the timelines and the continuum, what have you. Like, you got to be able to go back to the 40s and 50s. You know, you got to be able to go back before that. You got to be able to give me, tell me about Josephine Baker. You better have every YouTube clip of Josephine Baker memorized so you know what you're pulling from. Her performances in France. Because if you don't understand that full continuum and that history, you're going to write pieces that make you sound like a little kid when you're supposed to be an adult and you're supposed to know what the fuck you're talking about. And that's my feeling on stand culture and music journalism. And that's why if you call yourself a stand and you think that a stand makes you an expert, you're not. And if you subscribe to being a stand in this space, I'm going to have issue with it. Because it's going to affect your range. I'm a journalist. I'm an expert. I am never and never will be and can never be a stand. And I could never ride with that. That being the case. Um, another thing that I've been doing to pass time. Uh, not too long ago on Netflix. A new documentary hit it. And um, that documentary I believe is called Selling the Dream. And it's about... Uh, over the last decade plus, uh, the script's National Spelling Bee has been absolutely dominated by um, 
Indian American children or children of um, East Asian descent, right? Now, starting in like the mid to late 80s, they started making headway. But over the last decade plus, it's been an explosion, even though over the last 20 years, starting like 1999, there's been more and more of them filtering in because they were inspired after seeing other Indian American and East Asian kids succeed at it. And then when it got on ESPN, that's when it really blew up, when it became a thing. And then there was a documentary in 2003 called Spellbound. And then that's when, like, it really just, like, took off from there. So that being the case, there's this uh, documentary that covers that. And it pretty much tries to go into decompose and break down why is it that these Indian American children, children of immigrants, are crushing and dominating the script spelling bee. Why? And it pretty much comes down to something very basic. Kids, parents, a community saw themselves succeeding in something. And they were inspired to do it. And when they saw themselves flourishing and winning at something and dominating something for a change, and over time, more and more and more and more and more of them did it. And more and more and more of them began succeeding. And when we got, and you have to understand it, the script spelling bee is the last day. So you have, you start out with like close to 300 kids, to over 250 kids. And then you get down to the top 50 and then you have the last kids that make it on television to ESPN. And then you have all those rounds in between. So you have the best of the best of the best on the stage. And when you look at that stage and you see a bunch of kids that look like you and you represent 1% of the country. And there's not really a lot of representation for you and your people and your personage and your background in media or in new media for that matter then of course you're going to be inspired of course you're going to latch on to that and of course you're going to jump into it so and the thing is it is beautiful for me that when I watched it um, you see entire families because I've been watching the script spelling bee for a long time if you've been following me on Twitter one of the greatest times is when I used to live tweet the script spelling bee on Twitter uh, great time for me but the reason is because I, as a kid, I was a speller. I was a spelling bee champion. So let me take y'all back. I was, so Boston, again, split up into districts like um, the Hunger Games. So back in the days, my neighborhood, South End, Lower Roxbury, and I think into Chinatown was District 7. I was District 7 spelling champion in my grade in 81, 82, 83. I repeat, I was District 7 spelling bee champion for my grade in 81, 82, 83. That's the 1980, 81, 1981, 82, 1982, 83 school years. The only reason I wasn't spelling bee champion for the district in my grade and 79, 80 is because there weren't enough kids to compete against me. 
It was kindergarten two. I was the only kid that could spell my name and more than 12 words. So they had nobody to put up against me in a spelling bee. That first word, the other kid would cry. So if there was actually a spelling bee, I would have been champion. Fuck it, I crowned myself champion. I was spelling bee champion 80, 81, 82, 83. Fuck it. I know they don't have spelling bees for kindergarten, but I, I, I just killed myself champion. Now, that being the case, I quit in fourth grade for two reasons. One, I absolutely hated my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Jackson. He can eat a dick. And the other reason was that it was too much of a commitment. Because what happened is you had a spelling bee in your class. You won the spelling bee in your individual class. Then you had a spelling bee against all the other classes in your grade. Then they took the best kids and then they went in front of the school. And you went to the auditorium and you had the spelling bee there. And then you had to spell against everybody. And if you won the spelling bee in the auditorium, then you represented the school and another spelling bee. You win that spelling bee? Holy shit. Now you get to go to Faneuil Hall. And when you go to Faneuil Hall, that is a big deal, especially if you're in an inner city school. I'm holding in my hand a letter that was sent to, um, it says certificate bond, 25% cotton fiber. I didn't even realize that. The school committee of the city of Boston, Kevin A. McCluskey, president, May 8th, 1983. My government name, the Blackstone School, 380 Charmett Avenue, Boston, Mass, 02118. Dear government name. I am writing to extend my sincere congratulations to you for your success in the recent citywide spelling competition. I am sure that your family and friends are all very proud of your accomplishments, and I know that your continued hard work will bring you much continued success in the future. Again, my congratulations and best wishes. Sincerely, Kevin A. McCluskey, President, Boston School Committee, 26 Court Street, Boston, Mass., 02108. This is dated May 8th, 1983. It was postmarked. May 17th, 1983, I found this in a um, bunch of my mom's stuff. I've been doing a lot of like cleaning and building, going through the closet and all this other stuff. And I found, you know, on some John L. shit in Purple Rain when Prince was going through all the shit. And then all of a sudden papers start flying up. And as he was tearing shit up, I wasn't tearing shit up, I was fixing it. And he starts catching the papers in the air. You know, as I'm cleaning stuff up and I'm going through things and I'm rearranging stuff, I'm finding these envelopes with my name on them. And I'm like, yo, it's my full government name on it. So that's now I know it's old. But yeah, fourth grade, I decided to not do the spelling bee. For the most part, I did it because I did not want to represent my teacher because I hated his guts. And I really didn't really like my classmates all that much. And I didn't want to, um, I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to spell because I felt like, dude, I've been spelling since kindergarten. Like, I, I, I just want to take a year off. You know what I'm saying? See the world. Go to Europe. I just want to dance. Um, so fifth grade comes around. 
I'm back. I'm on it. I'm happy. I'm enjoying life. Uh, I love my new teacher. He taught every kid in my family, Mr. Muello. I don't know if he's still alive, but if he is, rest in peace. I mean, if he's still alive, word. If he isn't, rest in peace. Why did I say rest in peace? And I, I doubt he's still alive. It's 2020. He was old in the day. He was old back in the day. So anyways, I'll look it up. But that being the case, um, I loved, I had no, I wouldn't mind spelling. I'd get into the little spelling bees in the class. But he was like, yo, you want to get in the big joint? I'm like, no. Miss Wall's like, why not? I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. Whooping my own class's ass is good enough because ain't nobody better than us. We had a Mr. We had a number one. We're number one bus that was on the classroom because we were the best class in the entire school. The smartest kids were in Miss Mullo's class. And Miss Mullo had the best rate for getting kids into um passing the Latin test because the 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 words that he gave us and the definitions he gave us and the and the work he gave us showed up on a Latin test two years later. You had fifth grade and you have sixth grade. You take the Latin test in the sixth grade to get into the seventh grade. Mr. Muller prepared me for the Latin test better than my um, sixth grade class at the Timothy did. That's insane. I was like, what did he know? But that being the case, when you watch this documentary, you realize it's a family affair, right? And the thing is that these parents aren't pushing these kids to be spellers. They're not pressuring them to do it like some immigrant parents or some Asian parents do to try to get their kids into like extracurricular activities or to put up appearances in order to like, you know, be successful or achieve the dream. These kids are into it. They're watching uh, Indian kids spell on YouTube. They're following them on Twitter. It's like, it's a passion for them. It's just like how N1 basketball or like basketball or football or or Nintendo uh, power or, or rap or having a new EGM was or the new source or rap pages was for us. That's their shit. There was a generation of kids that were like, yo, um, they got the new and one mixtape on VHS and they watched that shit nonstop. And then they had little brothers and sisters that watched the show on ESPN two, had the games, then got the DVDs. And then they would go online and they hear about the Nautic. The Nautic was the and one of Vancouver in Canada. So back in the days, like that was another thing, man. That was another level. It was like immersion. Kids are in the hot sauce. They're fans of fucking King Handle. You know, Disaster. Johnny Blaze. You know, these kind of guys. You know, they're watching the And One tour for um, fucking The Pharmacist. They're watching uh, NBA TV to try to see um, The Bone Collector. A homicide. Ali Mo, the Black Widow. You know, like that's their passion. So the parents aren't really pushing it on them. 
and you have your window to do it. I think you have until you're 15, then you just don't do it anymore. I decided to not do it anymore because I just didn't want to go through with shit anymore. I didn't want to do all that studying. I didn't want to commit all that time to it because I wanted to be able to watch the Celtics game at night. I wanted to be able to watch the Patriots on Monday Night Football. I wanted to be able to hang out with Dominican girls and Cape Verdean girls and Puerto Rican girls and, and, and the black girls in my neighborhood uh, that my boy Zach hooked me up with or, or, the, or, or hang around with my boys um, Brandon and Kai and my, and my brother and do whatever we wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, but that was later. But when I was a little kid, shit, I was not going to cut into my time watching Transformers, G.I. Joe, uh, playing G.I. Joe and He-Man, you know, uh, running around with my Transformers. Yeah, I know I'm saying the same shit. But like, I wanted to be able to go to Teddy Bear Arcade, you know, whenever I wanted to. I wanted to be able to go to the uh, basketball court. I wanted to be able to run around with my big brother, behind my big brother and his friends, you know, going to the record store and shit like that. I didn't want to sacrifice any of my time recording tapes off of um, WRBB, WERS, WMBR at night. I didn't want to sacrifice any of that time that I spent playing, you know, uh, the Commodore 64 to commit it to be a spelling bee champion. And when you see how much fucking work it is, how much studying it is. And these kids are sure they know how the word how the how the word is spelled, but they gotta learn the root word, the entomology, the definition. And then they're looking up words that are like far beyond their grade. I th- I was spelling bee champion technically kindergarten, first, second, third grade. And do you know how much studying I did to be Spelling Bee Champion? City, District 7, Spelling Bee Champion, and go to the citywide spelling competition in Faneuil Hall in my good clothes in front of everybody for three straight years. Do you know how much studying I did to do that? Do you know how much studying I did to reach that space where other kids only dreamed of being? And they were jealous of me when I got back to school and everybody was celebrating me and I got my picture in the paper. Do you know how many mother do you know how many hours I studied to do that? None. None, absolutely none. I did no studying. None. I did not work at it at all. Not one bit. Not a motherfucking day. I did nothing. I could just spell. I see a word, I knew it. You told me a word, I spelled it. If I got the shit wrong, oh well. Now I know it. I promise you, the weirdest thing was when I got to this, when I got to the citywide, uh, the, the, the Faneuil Hall spelling bee, I lost every single time. I lost in the middle, not super early, but always in the middle. And the third, my third grade year, I was mad because I got a word wrong that I knew. The other two years, I didn't give a damn. I didn't care. I wasn't trying to win. I was mad because I saw I got I misspelled Patriot by mistake. I said I put the I in the wrong place. Some stuff, some dumb shit. Because I spelled it too fast. Because I knew it. 
And that's why I was mad. There's a picture of me in the paper where I'm dejected and I'm under a bust of John Adams. That's why I was mad because I've seen Patriot. I watched Patriots games. How in the fuck I get Patriot wrong? But losing, I ain't care. Because when you get further and further, it's a bigger deal and you have to do more work. And I was not interested in doing more work. 1983, I was not interested in doing more work. If, you, if this was a B-boy championship, whoo, I would have been head spinning. I would have been doing the King Tut. I would have been fucking, ooh, man, I would have been doing, I would have been doing um, my up rock. I would have been doing everything. I would have practiced if this was a B-boy competition. If it was a breakdance competition, as they called it back in the day, but it was actually a B-boy competition, I would have put in so much more work. I was not about to do any extra work if I did win. So when I see this um, documentary and you see this, the work, the passion, the interest, and they're not being pushed into it. This is something they want to do. They're coming up with their own means. Their parents are helping or their siblings are helping. But this is something that they want to do. That's dope. I didn't care. I just like the attention. Full disclosure, I was the middle boy by 1983. My big brother, Dave. Then there was me, then there was my little brother, Jeff. Then there was my big brother, Dave, my big brother, Dirk, me, my little brother. Then my sister, Ronnie. So I'm in the middle. And then I get even more in the middle as more children are born in my, in, in my family. So now... Of seven kids, three above me, three below me. Ronnie, Dave, Dirk, me. Jeff, Orban, Raphael. I am the middle child. I'm always in the middle. And when you're the middle child, when you used to be the baby, you always seek attention or a way to stand out. When I was a little kid, I did everything my big sister and big brother did. Or wanted to. They went to advanced classes. I'm going to advanced classes. They went to the Quincy. I want to go to the Quincy. They both had Mr. Mwello. I want to have Mr. Mwello. They went to the they went to the um Timothy. I'm going to the Timothy in advanced classes. They took the Latin test and destroyed it. I'm taking the Latin test and destroying it. They went to Boston Latin. I went to Boston Latin. When I got to Boston Latin, my sister had graduated. She was at Wesley on scholarship. My big brother was in his junior year. Then he graduated the next year and he went to Northeastern on scholarship. I was Latin by myself and I'm like, I don't like this shit. I don't want to do this. I got to figure out who I am. This shit ain't for me. I'm too much of a loose cannon. And, you know, I started figuring out who I was and who I am and how to use my voice. And I grew up a lot in those eight years in high school. 
Yeah, I went to high school for eight years. 1987-88, graduated 94-95. Eight years in high school. That's why when I write dialogue or write stuff for school and stuff like that, help people out with it, they're like, damn, you have a really good grasp of this. You have a really good grasp of it. I spent eight years in high school. And here's what's crazier. I worked with the Boston Public School System in high schools for the next two years. So I spent like 10 straight years in high school. It got me into teaching. It got me into mentoring. And it made me understand how to relate to people and how to tell stories and how to listen to people younger than me in order to understand shit I may not even... And to always know you don't know every fucking thing. And you can always learn. So, yeah. That's it for this episode of Dart Against Humanity. And those are fireworks, which have been going off in Boston ever since late April. And if you follow Boston Twitter, it's just a bunch of people complaining about fireworks. How the fuck did these fireworks get here? Anyways, one.